Hey everyone, this is Grady Rains on Cultural Conversations with IHUB. Today we are so excited to have Dr. Chantel Sloan, a professor in the Department of Health at Brigham Young University. Dr. Sloan is an expert on infectious disease prevention and control, and today will tell us more about the coronavirus and its global implications on the world. Joining our conversation as well are Dr. Olroyd and Burton, professors at the Marriott School of Business and founding members of the International Hub. Dr. Sloan, we are so happy that you're able to be here with us today. Um, could you give us a brief sense of the coronavirus? A sense of it. So this, this virus has uh, been really grabbing worldwide attention. Um, mostly because of its similarity to some previous uh, respiratory viruses like SARS and MERS that have um, come out over the last 20 years, but it's exceeded in number and in uh, of new cases and in the number of fatalities, both SARS and MERS, by quite a bit now. Um, it uh, is a respiratory virus that is traveling through China, caused a huge quarantine. Some 50 million people have been under quarantine for a couple of weeks now, and uh, a lot of interesting stories coming out of that. So it's one of the biggest quarantine experiments the world has ever seen. And there's a lot of um, resources going into tracking it and uh, making sure it doesn't spread on in other countries as prolifically uh, with varying degrees of success. And so, yeah, it's there. There are good reasons why it's grabbing global attention. Yeah, and then how does it compare to other outbreaks that we have seen in the past? So, you know, every outbreak's a little bit different. Um, when you look at something like SARS, uh, as the severe acute respiratory syndrome, um, that was in two thousand three, I believe. Um, we saw a lot of similarities in that there was quarantining and what we call social distancing, so a lot of uh, people voluntarily separating themselves from each other, um, staying home from school, work, uh, uh, cultural events, that kind of thing, um, everyone wearing masks, right? Uh, and, and that's probably the most similar one. Um, it was a virus from the same family. Um, the coronavirus family, and uh, also grabbed worldwide attention, but again, didn't spread as far, thankfully. Yeah. And can you tell us a little, bit about the, a little bit about the coronavirus family, like you mentioned? Yeah, so the coronavirus family is a, a genetic family of viruses that are spread through respiratory droplets, um, sneezing, coughing, uh, potentially touching surfaces, I think. Um, the jury is still a little bit out on that. We call it fomites spread uh, with this particular virus, but probably fomites as well. Um, and uh, they cause a wide range of uh, severity of symptoms. And so it can be anything from just the common cold or being asymptomatic, not having any symptoms at all, all the way to um, one of these more severe pneumonias that can cause hospitalization or death. And, uh, you know, most coronaviruses just come and go, like similar to a rhinovirus, which we 
referred to as the common cold virus. You know, and a lot of times it's just not that serious, but we get these new novel ones that, uh, just like getting a novel influenza, can really throw us for a loop. Yeah. And so then the correct name for this coronavirus is the no novel coronavirus? So they, they've named it COVID-19. So um, essentially the coronavirus from 2019. Okay. It's a pretty bland name. but. And then what are the main symptoms that are associated with this coronavirus? So uh, it's very cold and flu-like. So uh, runny nose, coughing, fever, um, progressing through... Uh, what many of us experience as a seasonal respiratory infection, um, but it can become much more serious, especially in people over 65. Um, and that's true of influenza as well, very similar. Um, uh, their immune systems are waning a little bit and they might have more pre-existing conditions. Um, and also people who have things like uh, lung, lung disease, asthma, um, diabetes, they can all make it much more serious or increase your risk of it becoming very serious. And what do we know about the human-to-human -human transmission of the coronavirus? Well, we know it's pretty contagious. <laughs> um, at first, you know, we were hoping uh, a lot of times when we have a new virus that we say spills over from an animal population to a human population, um, it will not be well, that well adapted to the human population and so we'll have um, a low level of contagion or a lower level. Uh, but unfortunately, that hasn't been the case with the coronavirus or COVID-19, as we're calling it now, um, that uh, each person uh, who's infected is expected to infect, uh, I think, two other people. We call that the R-naught number. Um, the reproductive number of the virus. If you've ever seen the movie Contagion, they totally describe this. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, for reference, a typical seasonal influenza will be between um, one, 1 1.5 and 2. And so it's about in that same range, um, maybe a little more. Depends. I, the numbers are constantly fluctuating, right? The estimates as we're getting more and more information. Yeah. And then with that, how, what do we know about the origin of the coronavirus and how does that affect the disease? Yeah, so the origin, last I checked, is still being pinned down. There's a chance um, uh, it might have transmitted through these animals called pangolins, I think is one hypothesis, but it's a virus that uh, occurs normally in bats. A lot of our new viruses come from bats. They, uh, yeah, um, tend to spread things pretty readily um, there's a lot of them, and they travel, right? So, um, so uh, it may have spread from bats to some other animal like a pangolin and then have infected a human, uh, possibly out of that uh, marketplace in Wuhan that was originally tagged as being a potential source, though many of the cases, even early cases, um, were not traced back to that particular market. So there's still a little bit of mystery around what exactly happened yeah. as of my last understanding. But again, this is changing every hour. And then just a little background to that. How does the disease like coronavirus differ from something like smallpox? Is that because it's not, if that makes sense. 
Small in in what way? In what way that it's like it's not from I guess it's not from animals, but these coronaviruses all does it all come from? So actually, most viruses that infect humans originally came from an animal. Uh-huh. We call them a zoonotic disease, um, and when that virus uh, mutates in a way where it's able to infect a new species, that's called spillover. Mm-hmm. And so influenza, for example, influenza A that is infecting us all right now, really bad influenza A season, spills over from birds. Um, uh, Ebola spilled over from bats. Uh, There are a few diseases that originate in humans where we're the reservoirs. So um, respiratory syncytial virus, which everybody gets by the age of two, right? If you're familiar with RSV, a lot of people with little kids fear RSV, that's a human reservoir virus, but those are actually in the minority. Most of them do come from animals. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then it seems like the, the number of cases in China has jumped very fast, like quickly mm-hmm. very, very fast. Should we be concerned in the United States that there's more cases that are not yet uh, diagnosed? Yeah, there are probably a lot of cases that have gone undiagnosed. And this is a tricky thing about following an epidemic in real time. You'll see in the news, oh, cases fell today, offering hope. And then cases jumped by 2,000 today because of a new test. And uh, uh, trying to follow it in real time like that and analyze trends day to day will, um, it will cause a roller coaster, <laughs> right, of emotions. Because we are getting more data and new tests. And there probably are lots of cases that have not been laboratory confirmed and, and official. And um, I think concern in the U.S., um, we can uh, have, we can have, you know, a moderate concern. I have more of a concern for um, the people in China and uh, surrounding countries that have been more directly afflicted with it. Um, just an compassion and, and an empathy. Uh, we want to be careful in the U.S. with making sure people are screened, quarantined if they're coming from that area. But it's not right now um, a major threat to our population. It's not a- actively transmitting at any kind of high level. Yeah. And what impact would you say that culture has had effect has had an effect on the transmission of the disease? Yeah. So there's this really interesting story, right, of the original doctor who raised an alarm about this back in November, December, um, having essentially their voice silenced by the government, but then uh, actually um, his warnings turned out to be true and unfortunately ended up passing away from the same disease. And so there has been this effect of um, uh, the culture and especially the, the governmental influence over the sharing of information that uh, has, has caused a lot of problems. Um, on the flip side of that, uh, the government has also, uh, in China, has a tremendous amount of resources, and they were able to build a giant hospital in 10 days, which a lot of people around the world, including the U.S., have looked at and said, wow, that's pretty impressive that they could pull that off. So um, I think uh, for uh, better and worse mm-hmm. culture and and probably more um, the political structures have had an influence. Yeah. Can you expand on that, on how the political structures have influenced? Yeah, I think the um, just the protection of data, the uh, 
protection of um, uh, of image, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the government's ability to respond has been interesting. And I think that's a story that's going to continue to unfold. We'll learn more and more about those early days of the outbreak and the epidemic and how information was shared and to whom and who they've allowed to uh, provide relief and resources uh, along the way. Um, it's, it's been interesting. Yeah. And then maybe a question to, to everyone in the room. How do we feel that the novel coronavirus will impact the global economy? One of the concerns <coughs> business travelers have right now is going to Asia, not necessarily to China, but any other country and then being quarantined when they come back into the United States. So a lot of a lot of business travelers are thinking, I don't even want to entertain that risk right now. So I'm gonna I'm not I'm gonna curtail my business travel. And that certainly is gonna have an impact on the economy and on, on the businesses and the companies they do business with. Is that really a risk that you think that business travelers should be concerned about? Well if they're traveling to a region with um, active spread of the virus uh, well, for one, right now, getting to those places is very difficult, <laughs> right? Um, uh, then they might be quarantined or have some limitations on, um, say, materials they can bring back and forth. But generally speaking, they should be they should be all right. Uh, the economic impact I've seen, and um, we have more experts in economics and business <laughs> than me for sure, uh, has been the total shutdown of these major cities. And all these people telecommuting, they said it was one of the, they're saying it's one of the largest telecommuting experiments ever. And I wonder if you guys can speak yeah, to I that. Think it, I think it's going to be really interesting to, to, and this really is an experiment. I mean, we've never really had shutdown on this massive of a scale or this prolonged of a scale. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of productivity, clearly the manufacturing sites that were closed are slowly starting to open again as uh, workers come back. And then there's just many, many people working from home for an extended duration of time, you know, telecommuting. And we've, we've, we've never had that happen at this massive of a scale, a forced scale. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting. Mean, the technologies are in place that theoretically it shouldn't have that big of an impact on, on a lot of the businesses, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see if that plays out, if, if these technologies actually can uh, proxy for the face-to-face the -face communication. So those business travelers that are not going are having Skype or Zoom meetings instead. Does that mean in the future that they'll realize I didn't need to go anyway and so I can do those, you know, so it'd be interesting, is this like a, a tipping point when we, we turn to more technology mm -hmm. as a as, as a, the, the medium of communication and, and curtail the travel? Yeah, we'll see what kind of impact this really has on tourism as well, because people are sh are shy. They're they're scared about going any place. We're seeing even in some business settings where conferences have been planned that they're being canceled just so that we don't have a mass group of people meeting together. Mm -hmm. So those normal courses of education and exchanging of ideas that may have a, a longer term impact as well. But it is interesting. We're in an environment now where there's technology that allows us to have these virtual meetings. And it may be, just as, as Professor Oldroyd mentioned, that we've realized we may cut down on future travel just because the technology's there and we're as effective with it right now. Yeah. 
What would a question that I would like to ask is what would you see some as some takeaways, things that we can learn from what the like the world has experienced with the coronavirus so far? Kind of an interdisciplinary like thought. We have a, a few different fields here. What are some things that we can take away and learn from what the experience so far? Well, I think there's one lesson we're learning from epidemics over and over again, and that's uh, through SARS and again MERS, which I've mentioned a couple times, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and um, uh, the recent Ebola outbreaks, and now uh, COVID-19. And that's that we need to uh, have good surveillance where we're receiving information about potential cases for novel viruses, um, and we're listening to that information early because all of these things like quarantining, social distancing, uh, they work the best when you start it early. And we could have taken those initial 11 people um, who were infected and done much more active follow-up uh, if, if we had acted a little bit earlier and avoided a lot of this, these consequences. It's interesting because if you look at health data, you know, so big data is like changing the way we drive. You know, they're optimizing the flow of traffic using big data, and businesses are, are I think, being becoming more efficient as they, you know, look through giant data sets and find hidden patterns. And yet, it's really transparency is what we need at the end of the day. And uh, you know, if you imagine that that uh, the potential the potential of having having that analysis done in a massive or even global scale of looking at infection rates, uh, that would be, you, we could do a lot if we had some mechanism to have that happen. The problem is, is to have that happen is really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. So we kind of expect <clears throat> with the advancing technology and with also maybe being faster at diagnosing things and having massive data sets, the focus on data science and data analytics and being able to make conclusions faster might might be a, a boon to our public health in the future. Yeah. Is, is there a trend towards that, do you think? There is, you know, there are a lot of really great surveillance programs around the world where people are trying to collaborate and say, where are the new viruses coming from? But funding for them can shift. Uh, the U.S. actually, until recently, had a program, I believe it was called PREDICT, where they were trying to identify possible new sources of viruses and animals that could spill over into humans. Um, but it was recently defunded and, uh, and has been inactive. And so those kinds of programs are really important to prevent these kinds of scenarios. Um, the World Health Organization has surveillance and a, a watch list for the uh, top diseases that they're keeping an eye on to see is this going to move over into humans um, or is this a past epidemic we've seen and it could come up again in a much bigger way. Um, so there are a, a variety of programs that are working to collect these data and make them available. Um, but the amount of funding they receive, the amount of political backing they receive can vary by time and location. So could you just talk, I'm just curious about the mortality rate of, you know, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. What What is it, like, the, how does it compare to the common cold? Or, uh, I mean, it clearly like Ebola or others are much, mm -hmm. you know, has mu a much higher fatality. What, what do we know so far? So, so far, 
we know that um, I think we've had 11,000 confirmed cases and a, about 1,000 deaths or something like that. Um, uh, the actual case and death counts, of course, are shifting constantly. And so a, a really good solid mortality number, I think, is going to be forthcoming. Um, it does have a much higher mortality than the common cold, uh, but much lower than something like an Ebola, where if left untreated, Ebola could be, you know, 40, 50 percent, um, especially in malnourished populations. Uh, so um, definitely not the the mortality rate of something like an Ebola or a bird flu, uh, H5, uh, flu H5N1, and really not even as high as our seasonal flus that are going around right now. Um, so uh, uh, hopefully this is a reminder to everybody to take uh, hygiene precautions, hand washing, uh, staying home when sick um, with flu because it's uh, worse right now in the U.S. by far than COVID-19 is. So, so could you put that in numbers? Like what does that mean? Like what's the, if we look at the mortality rate of the seasonal flu, what does that it's different every year. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as it ranges, like, is it <clears throat> half a percent, one percent? So we, we had, so in 2017, um, I'd have to look at the percentages again, but there were about 80,000 deaths in the United States. So it ranges anywhere year to year from about 23,000 deaths to 80,000. Um, and that, again, is primarily in people over 65, though we do also see deaths in people under the age of five. Uh, very sadly, especially those that have maybe some pre-existing conditions. Um, so, uh, but like in 2009, with pandemic H1N1, we saw uh, much higher death rates among younger people. So um, we're talking uh, typically in a typical season um, about... Uh, uh, say it's like 0.1%. There's a number that gives us the, the threshold of saying this is more of a serious pandemic flu. Um, so it's low, right? It's, it is low, but it's um, so prevalent that it still adds up to a lot of people who die, right? So is the COVID-19 overblown then? Is it like, a, I mean, if it's, or is, you know, is the, do, I we, do we know yet? We, I don't think it's overblown um, because it is serious and it is infecting a lot of people and you know, a lot of people have lost family members um, and, and friends already from it. And uh, because of its newness, it means that we don't have any built up immunity really in the world population, whereas uh, the common cold, rhinovirus or flu has been with us for a long time. Um, and we have for instance, a flu vaccine. We don't have a coronavirus vaccine right now, or COVID-19, that's what I need to say, because there are many coronaviruses. Um, so, so it is serious and uh, deserves our attention. Um, however, it, should it be keeping the average American up at night wondering, are they gonna get COVID-19 tomorrow? Well, no, we're, we're not there. Um, one of my, I don't want to be alarmist, <laughs> but one of my one of my concerns is, you know, is has it spread enough that COVID nineteen is now going to become part of our our seasonal respiratory uh, normal? Um, are we going to see it again next year? 
uh, after uh, spring comes, the climate warms up, uh, respiratory viruses tend to decrease. Um, but will we see it again in September? That's, that's an unknown. Um, hopefully the answer is no. <laughs> it would be nice if the answer were no. So how, how did they uh, do such a good job of like uh, SARS or, mm -hmm. you know, they, is it the same precautions that were taking place then or was it just the higher mortality rate? And yeah, so similar precautions. Um, it had to do with uh, a little bit with location. I mean, Wuhan is such a busy, congested place, you know, um, uh, very high density populations, which is like Disneyland for a respiratory virus. Um, there, there are differences in uh, how contagious they are, um, but basically the precautions are the same. Social distancing, reducing uh, the number of um, contacts people have in a day, so fewer cultural events, um, schools closing, uh, people wearing masks, washing hands. You know, it's the same story, uh, but different place, different virus. So how often mm -hmm. do you think that we can expect a new virus that's devastating and contagious? Is it is it increasing in frequency or is it about the same over the last hundred years? It's increasing in frequency. It's a great question. Um, it's increasing uh, where we're having more and more spillover. And part of that is we have better detection of when spillover happens. But it's also um, a product of having a much more global society and having uh, so much environmental devastation because spillover happens when we interact uh, frequently with a particular species. Um, and so when we destroy uh, ecosystems <laughs> and we are pushing animals to live in more urban environments, we're interacting with them more um, on kind of the edges uh, and uh, spillovers, <coughs> yeah much more common now and increasing awesome again well, not to be alarmist <laughs> <laughs> I think are there any final thoughts or, or questions that we have maybe any final thoughts things that you you, you hope that people would know about if you've, you've taught us a lot I've learned I, so much so I feel like I've kind of dumped all the information out of my brain here. <laughs> so if there's uh, just maybe, maybe a couple of summary thoughts, you, you've touched on a lot of these about washing our hands, uh, limiting mm -hmm. some contact, doing some other things. Just from an, a, a, the way that we conduct our normal lives, are there any other mm -hmm. precautions that we should take or anything that we should mm -hmm. worry about? You don't want to be alarmist, but we don't want to bury our, our heads in the sand either. Mm -hmm. What should we do just on a daily basis now to, to live without being in fear? Yeah, so... Um, I think it's good to communicate with people, especially when you uh, are infected with something yourself. So I actually got influenza A over the last weekend um, from my niece and nephews who are delightful. I still love them. Um, but uh, uh, I went to the pharmacy to pick up some medications and the person who was my cashier happened to be a pregnant woman and I was just like, oh no because they're much more susceptible to influenza A. And so um, I just told them, you know, hey, I have a virus. I'm gonna kind of hang back here, you know, use Purell after, and she gave me the weirdest look. She, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty common when you study infectious diseases that you get weird looks. But, um, you know, I just, uh, communicating with your boss, communicating with your family members, 
Um, if there's, you know, a family event coming up and you're sick, you know, be, be feeling free to communicate, hey, I'm going to stay back for this reason, especially if they're going to be um, young children, uh, pregnant women, or anybody over the age of 65. Uh, uh, and as um, family members and employers being and professors being understanding of that and saying it's better for everybody if we practice some social distancing. But also get your flu shot and uh, wash your hands with soap and water often. Okay, not just Purell. Purell is good in between washing with soap and water, but there are some very important viruses that it does not kill. So um, soap and water, soap and water, soap and water. <laughs> so for the layman, at what point should we start taking these precautions for ourselves if we have the runny noses the sniffles uh -huh. the coughs uh, is there a combination or a, a couple of things that we should say maybe this is the point that i should be concerned mm. i think we all kind of reach a point where we start getting sick and we're like maybe this is just an allergy or the air is dry and then we realize no legitimately this is something different and you know a stuffy nose you're coughing a little bit more you have um uh, the the scratchy throat, you know, we all we all know. It's kind of it's just really being honest with yourself and saying, this is legitimately a virus. And if you're showing symptoms, um, even before you're showing symptoms, for many of these, you can be contagious. So when you're showing symptoms, you definitely are, um, even if they're mild. So I usually tell my students I have a very strict do not come to class sick policy. I preach that on day one, like you are not allowed to come. I love you, and that's why I want you not here. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you've been coughing or sneezing the last 24 hours, if definitely if you've vomited in the last 24 hours, um, not that it's a pleasant thought or had other gastrointestinal issues <laughs> that can remain nameless. Um, uh, just, yeah, be, be wise and treat it as a way of showing respect to other people that you're taking care of yourself and not spreading it. And I think that's a cultural change that the U.S. could make in general mm -hmm. instead of all this pressure to still go out and participate when you're not feeling well. Dr. Sloan, thank you for coming and thank you for sharing your insights. We hope you'll be back next week. To continue learning, join the conversation by going to internationalhub.org.